The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Sometimes a man's roots and responsibilities go deeper than where he lives. Isn't that sort of idea rather stale and old-fashioned, Mr. Kyle? When we came out west, we left that behind. Can you ever leave behind an idea or an ideology? Welcome, everyone. It's Thursday, March 4th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion. It's not right wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Today, the theme of our show is all about the importance of being right and not being ashamed of it or trying to hide it. Even in the midst of all the crises we've been discussing weekly on this show, from COVID to stolen elections to censorship and propaganda, I think this issue not only transcends most political crises, but must be resolved before any of the other critical issues can ever be effectively addressed. I had my attention drawn to a very interesting conversation between two high-profile people who have appeared on Just Right in the past, Professors Jordan Peterson and Gad Sad. In bringing their conversation to my attention, listener Trevor D. commented, quote, This is worth watching, in spite of the parts in the video where the needle on Peterson's and Sad's political compasses rapidly spins round and around. In my opinion, they should both start listening to Just Right. <laughs> well, Trevor, I agree. And maybe if they did, we might be able to extract some of those false idea pathogens about the political spectrum that clearly infect each of them. And we'll explain what that means right after our encouraging you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right social media links and our archive broadcasts. And as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Not right wing, just right. I make a point of opening every broadcast of this show by making that distinction, and once again I've been offered a perfect exhibit of why I think I have to do so. And that exhibit is this recent conversation between professors Jordan Peterson and Gad Sad. Now Gad Sad was Jordan Peterson's guest on the Jordan Peterson podcast, February 15, Season 4, Episode 6, and the title of his show was Gad Sad, Infectious Ideas. So the focus of their discussion, which actually took a place about a month earlier on January 15th, was about Gad's book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Now that was very interesting because this was the very book, at the time still unpublished, that Robert Vaughn and I discussed with Gad Sad way back on our May 10th, 2018 show, show number 555. And to save myself a bit of time trying to explain the gist of what Gad's book is about, I thought I would instead offer this very highly edited portion of our own conversation with him regarding that very question. Now, very pleased to be with Gad Sad. 
one of those dexterous voices out there on the right, sort of on the right, the left. Uh, let's just say just right. <laughs> I'm an ideas no, man. You can't play on, on words, yeah. dexterous voices. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not sinister like a lot of people are. You gave us an insight into a novel idea that you're putting into a book coming out next year. Uh, do you have a working title on the book yet? So the working title is The Parasitic Mind. It used to be called Death of the West by a Thousand Cuts, but it doesn't have enough hope. And so not, right now it's The Parasitic Mind, how political correctness and the thought police erode free exchange of ideas. We, we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but, but Death of the West simply sounded too ominous. Yeah. When you, when you talk about the parasitical mind, what would be the quickest way you would define that for someone? Yeah, so the idea is that in the same way that there are biological pathogens, actual parasites mm -hmm. that infest, that infect yeah, I found that fascinating. Right, the brains of organisms, rendering them maladaptive, right? They, I gave many examples, but I'll give one here for your listeners. So a, a, a mouse that is infected with a particular parasite loses its innate fear of cats. When it loses its innate fear, then it, it goes straight to its demise. Well, I argue that in the same way that there are biological pathogens that could be maladaptive, there is another class of pathogens called idea pathogens that also render us uh, maladaptive in our behaviors, in our thought patterns, in our thinking. And so the, the, really the goal of the book is to first explain what those pathogens are, explain the ecosystem in which they've evolved, which is the university setting, mm -hmm. and then offer ways by which we can inoculate ourselves or free ourselves from these pathogens. So this is kind of an analogy to the biology absolutely, the situation. Absolutely. Now I was interested in some of your solutions that you were talking about and you're suggesting that we should pursue knowledge. There shouldn't be any identity politics. We should promote intellectual and political diversity and curiosity. What do you do in, a, in an environment where, as we've discovered, quote unquote, facts don't matter? <laughs> you know? uh, is, is that a real phenomenon? Or is that just our way of expressing our frustration with people who, who aren't interested in, in fact? Or are we doing this for a third party? who's watching the debate between the two immobile sides. You know, you know what I'm well, it certainly is a real phenomenon. The example that I gave in my lecture when I talked about how this uh, radical feminist was upset that I argued that only women can bear children. I mean, when you could negate a reality that is so <laughs> trivially laughable as that, then it is truly a real phenomenon. Well, it's not funny anymore. It's, not, it's tragic, right? The way I think you solve it is that you eventually I know that they love to use the term to be marginalized. You have to marginalize them out of the, the pantheon of public discourse, right? Today, if you are a flat earther, mm -hmm. you're not going to find many sympathizers of your position. I mean, there is a flat earth society, but most people I, are... I've never taken them seriously. I thought they were just a social group for fun. <laughs> Maybe. But the bottom line is that, you know, very few people take flat earthers today seriously, mm -hmm. right? In the same token, you, you have to delegitimize these people. But do it in, in again, in a, in a manner that the data speaks against them, right? Now, of course, at the time of that conversation back in 2018, there was no pandemic and no stolen election to talk about. But the very challenge we just heard described by Gadsad, delegitimizing by data those who should not be taken seriously, is the very nature of the conflict that now exists between those who insist that the election was stolen and those who insist it was not, between those who argue that, say, climate change will destroy all human life within a decade or two and those who do not. 
between those who believe there is a real COVID-19 pandemic and those who do not. Now, when it comes to the broader analogy that Gad uses in describing idea pathogens, I find it quite useful in an emotionally descriptive way, and certainly found a lot in common with Gad when it came to his observations about how uncritically ideas can spread from one person to another, in such a way that the idea is described as maladaptive, and therefore harmful to the host. And you can hear our own entire discussion with Gad on that account by visiting Just Right's site and listening to Just Right number 555, May 10, 2018. And by the way, that discussion originated from our own YouTube channel, where I believe it might be the only time I've ever appeared in front of Just Right's cameras for a Just Right video production. But today, our focus, as I mentioned earlier, is on the importance of being right. And to that point, did you notice how at the opening of our conversation with Gad Sad, after Robert Vaughn introduced him as, quote, one of those dexterous voices out there on the right, or let's just say, just right, end quote, Gad immediately distanced himself from being identified as a voice on the right, arguing, I'm an ideas man, you can't label me. <laughs> And you know, for our purposes today, that is the more significant comment. So just keep that observation in the back of your mind. It will become much more significant later on in the show today. Now, I can think of a number of reasons why Gadsad would wish to distance himself from being labeled on the right, and I will speak to a few of them following our first sampling of the conversation between Jordan and Gad. And just let me make it clear from the outset, okay, <laughs> that as much as I appreciate and agree with many of the ideas being promoted by each of them, when it comes to this whole subject of political labels, their conversation was a total, complete train wreck. And the ideas expressed therein are more harmful to their own objectives, I think, than either of them can possibly imagine. So let's listen in, shall we? Hello, everybody. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gad Saad. Gad has recently written The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. So let's start with that. You talk about infectious ideas, and let, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a bit of a critical stance to begin with, I think. Your book concentrates a lot on infectious ideas on the left. And of course, that's been a particular preoccupation of mine in recent years, although I, was, I spent a lot of my career dissecting infectious ideas on the right, because I was very appalled, as any reasonable person would be, about what happened. I mean, it's ridiculous to even have to say it, but I was preoccupied in some sense what, by what happened in Germany in the 1930s and the 1940s, and the infectious ideas that possessed that entire community, that entire country, and the devastating consequences of that. And so it's obviously the case that infectious ideas can emerge across the political spectrum, Absolutely. maybe even in the moderate center, but certainly on the right. But your book concentrates almost solely on the excesses, the ideological excesses of the left. And I'm wondering what you think of that as a scientist. Sure. Uh, it's a great point that you raise, and I actually address it uh, very early in the book where I argue that it is absolutely not the case that it's only one side of the political aisle that could be parasitized by bad ideas and idea pathogens. 
the reason why I specifically focus on uh, ideas stemming from the left is not because this is a political book, but rather because I operate and you you've operated your entire life within an ecosystem called the you know academia. And within the context of academia, the idea pathogens that are most likely to proliferate are those that are stemming, that are being spawned by leftist professors. This certainly does not apply that the right could not itself be parasitized by countless other idea pathogens. So it's not because I was trying to take a political position, but rather as any epidemiolog epidemiologist would do, or, any, or I call myself a parasitologist of the human mind, I happen to be focusing on idea pathogens that are the ones that define my daily reality. Well, I, okay, I, I can I can sympathize with that because I would say as well that as a an academic, I haven't felt the pressure of right wing conspiratorial theories in relationship to my work. But I would say this is this is something that has happened is that. I started to talk about political ideas because of the consequences of left-wing ideological thinking in the academy. And what happened as a consequence of that was that I was branded, as you have been, as a right-wing thinker, an alt-right thinker, maybe even a Nazi, because I was called that on more than one occasion. And I think that might be true of you too, although you make a more a less believable Nazi than me, I would say, given your background. Um, a less plausible Nazi, let's say. So I found that when I objected to the to the excesses of the left, the people who sprang to my defense tended logically enough to come from the right. And and there were tendrils, feelers out from even the more radical right to see if because I was opposed to the radical left that I might be a supporter, say, of the radical right. And what was interesting about that to me watching that is that you tend to think better of people when they come to your defense. And so I noticed, uh, what would I say? It's, it's hard to keep your centrist bearings when you go after one side of the political equation and you're befriended at least in part by the other or the, or the, the feelers are there. So I'm wondering what you think about that. Do you think that have you shifted more towards the right as a consequence of, of um, yeah, yeah. opposing the radical left? I, I don't think so, because oftentimes people ask me, you know, you never espouse a particular position about your political tribe. And, and, and I answer them not to be coy or to be evasive. I tell them that's because I truly don't believe in sort of an all encompassing label that defines my political positions. There are many positions on which you would think, oh, this is a conservative position. So for example, when it comes to open door policy or AKA immigration policy, then you would think I'm quote conservative. When it comes to, you know, capital punishment for predatory serial pedophiles, I have absolutely no moral restraint in the idea of executing someone who's raped five children. That would be considered a conservative idea. When it comes to social issues, then you would think of me as extremely socially liberal and quote progressive. So, so really my own personal tribe is one that is defined by 
examining each individual issue and then proposing a position based on sort of universal foundational principles. So the fact, again, that I criticize largely the left says nothing about my ability to have most of my friends be leftists uh, by me believing in many of their uh, positions. It's simply that, you know, it's the, the way I like to compare it is if I were an endocrinologist who specializes in treating diabetes, it would be silly for someone to come to me and say, but wait a second, uh, Dr. Saad, how come you're never exploring melanoma? Don't you know that melanoma is a deadly disease? Well, of course it is. I just happen to be someone who is studying diabetes. That, that doesn't state anything about the dangers of the endless other panoply of diseases that might afflict human beings. And so I think it's really very much in that spirit that I wrote this book. It's not at all that the right cannot be parasitized. Uh, take, for example, anti-scientific reasoning. Uh, oftentimes, my leftist colleagues will pretend as though it is the right who engages in anti-science rhetoric. Now, let's take a discipline that I'm in, evolutionary psychology. Well, when it comes to the rejection of evolution, it is much more likely to be people on the right who reject evolution. When it comes to evolutionary psychology in particular, though, it's a lot more likely to be people on the left who reject you know, evolutionary arguments for to, to explain, for example, sex differences. So it's not that one party is anti-science more than the other. It's that each party has its own anti-scientific lenses and myopia. For someone like me, that was truly a painful conversation to listen into. I've been hearing those same exact arguments and justifications about left and right for over 40 years. And they are all based on an extremely flawed epistemology. In fact, I would say they're based on no epistemology at all from where I'm sitting. You know, I was reminded of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship's past president, John Furity, going back some 20 years or so. And he was a hardcore left-winger who always complained about right-wing censorship. Furity was among many leaders and organizers like myself who would meet regularly under the umbrella of the Montgomery Tavern Society in Toronto. And while most of those attending these meetings would have identified themselves on the right, there were several others who would not. So being on the right myself, one day I confronted Mr. Furity after hearing him complain about right-wing censorship, and I asked him to clearly identify even a single group on the right that he could cite that is advocating such censorship, and he couldn't think of a single one. All of the censorship he was fighting emanated from the left, and, and you could see it was, it was like an epiphany to him. So this fundamental confusion about left and right is not something new to me. I once suffered from it myself. The greatest shortcoming of that entire conversation between Gad Saad and Jordan Peterson as always in conversations like this, is that not once, not once, was there a definition offered for exactly what left and right are. What do they represent? What the hell were they talking about? And here's my sincere response to that question. They themselves do not know what they're talking about, and they are seriously struggling with that dilemma. They haven't got a clue. And to cover up that lack of knowledge, or worse, what I call a knowledge of things that just ain't so, they pretend that there can be other political positions besides the polarized extremes of left and right. 
which are in reality the only two choices we have when it comes to the realm of political discourse and action. There are no such other positions. You can't be partially dead and partially alive, you know? <laughs> now, one of the reasons that Gad Saad might not want to be associated with the right is because if one is known to support certain political ideals, then that person can no longer be considered to be objective, and everything done by that person becomes subject to doubt and questions of his motivation. Well, he's with a political party, or he has, a, he has some idea of his own, and he's pushing those ideas into his research, you know? Or another reason that Gad Saad might not want to be associated with the right is because he believes the right includes political manifestations like fascism and Nazism, as does Jordan Peterson. This was clearly evident from their conversation. But in reality, both fascism and Nazism sit squarely on the left, and it has always been so. This was another thing that the left did to confuse people about which direction each of those philosophies points in. Therefore, to use Gad Saad's analogy, both of the professors are suffering from a maladaptive idea pathogen, which leads them into destructive conclusions. Had they recognized that Nazism and fascism and alt-right, by the way, all sit on the left, I mean alt-right, how much more left can you be? The alternative to the right is the left. Okay. You don't have a right and an alt-right. Um, so alt-right means not right. But just consider how recognizing that one fact alone, and it is a fact, as we've clearly demonstrated on past broadcasts, but consider how that would have changed their entire positions on everything we just heard them say. Now, for anyone interested in the full details about left and right, check out our show number 510, just write number 510, which aired June 27, 2017, and it was called Compassing the Political Spectrum, Left and Right. And here's what our blog post for that show basically summarized, just to give you a brief idea of what this is all about. You know, in traditional scales and diagrams that illustrate the political spectrum, which I do not believe there is a political spectrum, most people have been taught that the left represents communism and the right represents fascism and somehow there's some kind of middle of the road that represents some sort of moderate versions, what, of fascism and communism? I never understood that, but neither do the people who think they're in the center. Now, both in theory and practice, these ideological representations, communism on the left and fascism on the right, are completely wrong. They do not reflect political reality, yet they continue to be taught in our schools and used as a standard method of contrasting this so-called political spectrum. And this has caused untold confusion in the minds of millions, and perhaps has played a greater role than most of us would like to know in the accelerating and tragic drift of nations to the left towards communism and fascism because we no longer have the proper compass we can use to guide ourselves. The traditional political spectrum is, in fact, a spectrum of the political left only. You've got the left wing, which is communism. You've got the right wing, which is fascism. Those are two wings of the left. What is being popularly described as the right today is really an oxymoronic concept. It is the right wing of the left, you know like fascism, like political conservatism, like Nazism, the things that they're afraid of being associated with when these things are really all on the left. And because the right represents freedom, okay, let's make that straight. The right represents freedom because if it doesn't, then freedom isn't on this scale at all. Nobody put it there. 
It was never on the original so-called political spectrum. Where the hell is freedom on that spectrum? It does not exist. So, because the right represents freedom, which is a natural condition, the political right is almost not political at all. In fact, the political right would be best described generically, not in the muddled leftist terms of political confusion and misdirection. And in that regard, I would define the right as something that is conformable to truth or fact. Left and right are absolutes. They are not relative. Left and right are about ideas, not about people. And ideas are not viruses or pathogens. You know, a pathogen is a disease-producing bacterium or microorganism. Even though that makes for great analogies in trying to describe the collective reaction to them. But ideas represent concepts, and some concepts are attractive, some are repulsive, some are innocuous. Some are correct, some are wrong. But only individuals are capable of having or possessing ideas. Thinking and reasoning are properties of the individual, not the collective. The political strengths behind Peterson and Sad relate to their experience on the freedom of speech front, which happens to be among the first political issues in which I became interested myself. And if I sound like I'm being a bit harsh or overly critical of their confusion about left and right, maybe it's because I shared that mutual ignorance on that issue for many years, much to my own detriment. I've talked about this before on the show, so maybe I'm being a little like a, you know, an ex-smoker who just discovered his freedom from smoking and he becomes among the harshest critics of smokers and, you know, <laughs> tries to constantly campaign on them. But I suppose the motivation behind this is to try to prevent others from making the same mistakes we ourselves have made, like the political ones I myself made on the issues of censorship and free speech. For example, back in my days of political ignorance, I once voted for the NDP. The New Democratic Party, which is a party of the left here in Canada, <laughs> which is ironically opposed to democratic principles, because at the time when I voted for them, that party was the party of free speech. And freedom of speech was the only issue I knew and understood at the time, so I voted left, unknowingly. I didn't know really or care about left and right at the time. Because at that time as well, the greatest proponents of censorship were the conservatives, considered to be a party on the right, particularly when it came to censoring sexually explicit movies, magazines, and books, etc. Well, before I knew it, when censorship of political expression became the censorship norm and sexual expression was allowed, it was the conservatives who championed free speech, while it was the left, the NDP and the liberals, who became the proponents of censorship. And that's still the case today. So here's my question to those who might be brave enough to answer it. Do freedom of speech and censorship sit on the left or on the right? Or as my personal example might falsely suggest, do censorship and freedom of speech exist at both polarities? Well, if we use the wrong so-called political spectrum scale, the answer would be yes and no to both propositions. No wonder objective people operating on this scale find it difficult to choose sides. But on the correct political scale, which is simply polarized, left and right, then freedom of speech is strictly and can only be a property of the right, and censorship is exclusively a property of the left. And that only makes sense, because the bottom line is that the left represents tyranny and collectivism in all of its forms. Socialism, fascism, communism, you name them, they're all on the left. While the right represents the conditions of freedom and individualism. 
There are no third options or middle-of-the-road positions. That is politics in a nutshell. Freedom of speech is incompatible with tyranny and is only compatible with freedom. I mean, dead or alive, you can't be both or neither or in between, pregnant or not, same polarity. Notice that these words, like tyranny and freedom, refer to conditions of being, not to actions or beliefs, even though the conditions are perhaps the inevitable consequences of those actions and beliefs. Now, Jordan Peterson and Gad Sad and others like them should quit being ashamed of being associated with the right based on that fake concept of the right as defined by a parasitic pathogen generated by the left. How ironic does it get? Now we go from the theoretical to the practical. Theory versus practice. Let's listen in as Jordan Peterson and Gad Sad apply their current misunderstandings of the nature of political polarity to the issues surrounding the U.S. election and other related political phenomenon. Okay, so I guess these questions are particularly germane given what happened in Washington in the last two weeks and what still might happen in the next few days. We'll see. Um, there's, I've noticed recently among friends and family members as well as more broadly in the culture that there is a pronounced increase in the degree to which conspiratorial theories in particular and paranoid theories are propagating on the right i think now i don't know much about QAnon. i've been out of the loop and and i i should be more on top of that but i'm not but i do know that that it's um popular and pervasive. And I do know that Trump's claims to have won the election are supported by a network of conspiratorial thinking. I was speaking with Douglas Murray about that. And you tell me what you think about this. This is sort of the conclusion of our discussion was that, so Trump claims that he lost the, or that he won the election and, and actually that he won it by a substantial margin. That's the claims as far as I've been able to uh, understand them. And then to believe that, this is what you have to believe. Um, you have to believe that the electoral system in the United States is broken to the degree that fraud is widespread and pervasive and of sufficient magnitude to move an election. You have to believe that people as close to Trump as Mike Pence have become part of a conspiratorial network or have been shut down by people who are able to put sufficient pressure on him. You have to believe that the judiciary in the United States, which I believe has ruled something like 60 times against his claims and one time in favor, you have to believe that it's become um, uncontrollably corrupt, even on the Republican side, even when those Republicans were nominated by Trump or Trump's people. And you have to believe that the only person standing on moral high ground through all of this has been Trump. And each of those propositions seems to me to be have a low probability of truth and their combined probability is infinitesimally small. So, but there's widespread support for Trump's claims that he, that he won the election and was robbed of it. And so, so someone who is looking at your book, especially from a leftist perspective would say, well, not only are you concentrating on the wrong side of the equation with regards to clear and present danger, but the omission of analysis of conspiratorial thinking on the right shows a blind spot that is of sufficient magnitude to threaten the stability of society. You see, I've really been thinking about this because I have felt as an academic that the greatest threat to my scientific inquiry and to my free inquiry has clear and to my students for that matter has clearly come from the 
left. But, well, but, there's no doubt that conspiratorial thinking is on the increase on the right. I mean, I knew that was going to happen five years ago, and that's partly the sorts of warnings that I was trying to put out, that with enough cage rattling, the right was going to wake up. Uh, I think what you're, this, the, the argument that you're making is that the susceptibility to believe BS, there's actually now a, a, a psychometric scale, which perhaps you're aware of, that actually measures susceptibility to BS. It's actually published, I think, in the journal called Judgment and Decision Making. And there's been several follow-ups of that work. So really looking at our ability to believe nonsense using a psychometric scale, all I think that you are demonstrating in the, in the question that you're posing is that the capacity for people to think in non-critical ways is not restricted to a political aisle. The left can be anti-scientific, the right can be anti-scientific. The left can succumb to idea pathogens, the right can succumb to idea pathogens. In, in chapter six of my book, I talk about a particular uh, cognitive malady, which I coined as ostrich parasitic syndrome. Uh, I think ostrich parasitic syndrome is something that all people can succumb to. By the way, not only the left and the right can succumb to ostrich parasitic syndrome, uh, being highly educated and otherwise intelligent does not inoculate you from many of these uh, cognitive distortions and, and, and uh, you know, irrational ways of thinking. So you would typically think, oh, well, you know, well, professors who are in the business of, you know, critically thinking would be the ones who might be immune from this. And meanwhile, as I describe in the book, the ones who spawn all of this nonsense are typically professors. So again, to reiterate, I, I truly don't think that uh, it is a political statement to argue that people can think irrationally. I simply chose to focus on the left because, as you said, uh, that's the world that I inhabit. That's the, those, the dangers come from those folks. Now, that doesn't mean that, listen, I, in 2017, when you and I finally appeared uh, at that event in, uh, in Toronto, I had received, because of what had happened with that journalist where she wasn't invited and so on, and do you, do you remember all that stuff, Jordan? Sure. Faith Goldie. Faith Goldie. I, I can remember. Where we made the extraordinarily difficult decision to not include her on the free speech panel. Well, right. And, and more than that, I mean, we sort of advised the organizer what our thinking was. And then ultimately it was up to her since she was the one who was organizing. Well, by simply stating that, the, and the number of death threats that I had received, and, I, and without being able to absolutely know for sure, I would predict that based on the demographic profile of many of the people who were sending me death threats, they would have been much more on the right, right? So again, it's not as though I am negating the possibility that people on the right could be, could be absolutely insane in their own unique and flowery ways. All I'm doing, though, in the book is I am focusing on diabetes without rejecting the fact that melanoma could also be important. So, again, it's really I hope that people don't read the book as though it is a political treatise. It just so happens that that's the ecosystem that I reside in. Another one of the most urgent issues facing the Republican Party is that of ensuring fair, honest, and secure elections. 
Such a disgrace. Such a disgrace. Such a disgrace. We must pass comprehensive election reforms, and we must do it now. The Democrats used the China virus as an excuse to change all of the election rules without the approval of their state legislatures, making it, therefore, illegal. It had a massive impact on the election. Again, you have to go to the legislatures to get these approvals. This alone would have easily changed the outcome of the election at levels that you wouldn't have even believed. Even with COVID, even with all of the things, the numbers are staggering. We can never let this or other abuses of the 2020 election be repeated or happen again. Can never let that happen again. You see what's going on. We've been set back so greatly with other countries and with the world. We need election integrity and election reform immediately. Republicans should be the party of honest elections that can give everyone confidence in the future of our country. Without honest elections, who has confidence? Who has confidence? This issue is being studied and examined, but the reality is you cannot have a situation where ballots are indiscriminately pouring in from all over the country, tens of millions of ballots. Where are they coming from? They're coming all over the place. Where illegal aliens and dead people are voting and many other horrible things are happening that are too voluminous to even mention. But people know, I mean, it's being studied and the level of dishonesty is not to be believed. We have a very sick and corrupt electoral process that must be fixed immediately. This election was rigged, and the Supreme Court and other courts didn't want to do anything about it. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. That was the voice of Donald Trump speaking this past weekend at the CPAC convention. And just before that, we heard Jordan Peterson arrive at a number of probability conclusions without presenting any evidence to counter the so-called conspiracy theories. He says, I do know that Trump's claims to have won the election are supported by a network of conspiratorial thinking. Hmm. A network of conspiratorial thinking. What, what is Peterson talking about? Is there no such thing as a network of people perhaps working together to discover the truth behind many very real conspiracies? You know, like Agenda 21, does he, does he not believe that's real? Like the Great Reset, does he not believe that's real? Even though the Prime Minister and everybody's talking about it? Like climate change propaganda? Talk about BS. Like the BS statistics we keep getting about COVID-19 and the vaccines. Has he not looked into any of these? You know, he admits to not knowing about QAnon. And I commend him for that. Yet another reason why he, as our listener Trevor suggested, should be listening to Just Right, because I myself was in that same position until a couple of weeks ago when we took a look at this phenomenon known as QAnon and discovered it's not a network of conspiracy theories the way the left is describing it. In fact, QAnon is something extremely feared by the left, as we'll hear again shortly, but that's just another conspiracy theory, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, our show is called QAnon at the Tipping Point, and it was aired February 10th, if you want to check that one out. And by the way, I got an email from Pauly St. George about that show, you know, the amazing Pauly who, following that episode of Just Right, wrote, 
Great little piece. Thanks. I shared it out on Gab. <laughs> okay. But wait, isn't the amazing Polly associated with the QAnon network? Does that mean that by her sharing our own show and thoughts on the issue, that we too are part of QAnon? Hey, I guess we've been conscripted. But I'm not out to conspire with anybody. My mission is simply to promote individual freedom wherever and whenever I can. And what is going on here, I fear, is that the very goal of fighting for freedom is being turned into a conspiracy theory, something to be avoided at all costs because it is a conspiracy. Ooh, a word we should all be afraid of. Now, just for the record, in the straight note, Mr. Peterson, let's go through his reasoning on this conspiratorial thinking. He says Trump claims that he won the election by a substantial margin. Well, yes, he did win the election by a substantial margin, and this is not based on his out-of-context claim. He didn't make it up. He based it on mountains of evidence and affidavits and all sorts of documented cheating that a lot of us watched with our own eyes. Then Peterson says to believe that, you have to believe one, that the electoral system of the United States is broken to the degree that fraud is widespread and pervasive and of sufficient magnitude to move an election. Well, hello? <laughs> yes! 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 Absolutely! And that is the case. We are hearing testimonies of this coming out from everywhere now. But again, one doesn't arrive at such a conclusion just by making it up. The available evidence supports this, as does the testimony of many observers and folks like the likes of General Michael Flynn and others. These are not just indiscriminate people coming out of the blue saying these things. Then Peterson says, you have to believe that people as close to Trump as Mike Pence have become part of the conspiratorial network or have been shut down by people who have been able to put sufficient pressure on him. Oh, well, yes and yes, <laughs> but more to the point. The political observers that we've heard from on this show all have said that Pence could never be trusted to be loyal from day one, to say nothing of being a rhino. I mean, R-I-N-O, you know, Republican in name only, who have been a thorn in Trump's side since day one. You have to believe that the judiciary in the United States, which has ruled 60 times against his claims and one time in favor, or first of all, this is factually untrue, most of the lost court cases, were not Trump's. Trump's team really never got to have their cases heard. But that's a complex matter, and this is not representative of it. But then, Peterson goes on, you have to believe that it has become uncontrollably corrupt, even on the Republican side, even when those Republicans were nominated by Trump or his people. Well, yes and yes. They're called rhinos for a reason, and they're part of the swamp that Trump is still working to clear out. And then he says, and you have to believe that the only person standing on moral high ground through all of this has been Trump. And yes, I do believe that, and the answer to that is also a resounding yes. And each of those propositions, says Peterson, seems to me to have a low probability of truth, and their combined probability is infinitesimally small. Now, from the very beginning of his term, we all pretty well knew and understood that Trump was a man alone. And the word conspiracy is not a swear word. It's, it's a neutral word. It doesn't mean anything. A conspiracy can be real or false or imagined or simply in the process of being carried out. And to talk about it does not make one a conspiracy nut, okay? And the irony of this whole statement made by Peterson is that the very group he cited 
QAnon is indeed a very loose term applied to a network of people who are trying to wake people up about the truth and reality of our situation. What's wrong with that? Agree with it or disagree with it, but don't dismiss it because you think it's conspiracy theory. That's not very scientific. What Peterson's quote-unquote combined probability argument tells me is that he is simply unable to bring himself to believe the reality of our situation. He is overwhelmed by his own skepticism, which is the same problem being faced by millions who cannot yet bring themselves to believe what we conspiracy theorists have been saying for years, not just since the election. Has he not noticed the lockdowns? Has he not noticed the troops around the Capitol? Does he ever watch Steven Crowder, who's been demonstrating a 100% fraud count on fake voter addresses that he and his team are personally investigating? It goes on and on. I mean, you don't have to believe any of it if you don't want to. But don't write off people who are taking intelligent steps, intellectually, morally, and properly addressing these issues, and write them off because you think they're conspiracy theorists. The conspiracy they're theorizing about is not their own. It's the conspiracies of others, which exist. So if I'm talking about, you know, the Great Reset or Agenda 21, yeah, I'm a conspiracy theorist when I talk about them, but they're very real. They're being pushed by the leaders of this world. They call them the same thing. So if you want to dismiss all that, guess who's avoiding reality? Fundamentally, QAnon is just a group of independent, unaffiliated individuals sharing information in an effort to try to wake people like Jordan Peterson and the rest of us up. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. We take a lot of digs at the media on this show and we do it for two reasons. It's fun and they deserve it. Recently we've watched with growing amusement as our media gatekeepers thrash around in a frenzy of foaming hysteria over the possibility that someone somewhere might dare to present facts or form opinions without their express written permission. Freelance thinking is what they hate most. It's a threat to their monopoly. They can't say that out loud, so instead they call it disinformation. Disinformation is the real threat, says the guy who thinks his union has the contract on bringing you the news. It's ridiculous. But before you judge these people, take a moment and feel some compassion. Consider how they might be feeling right about now. Imagine if you had spent 30 years making a good living as a car mechanic, and all of a sudden GM invents an engine that anyone can fix at home with a screwdriver. You'd be upset. That's how CNN feels about the internet. It's exposing their scam. Naturally, they're a little irrational about it. Millions of Americans clinging to conspiracy theories. This is all evidence of radicalization. And that's not easy to say. It's not an easy word to use. But it's way past time to talk about this honestly. No one should tiptoe past this predicament. Disinformation networks like QAnon are causing people to lose touch with reality. Disinformation networks? That doesn't sound like a misleading social media post. It sounds like a terror cell. And it sounds that way on purpose. The thing about disinformation they're telling us is that it's not simply harmful to you personally. It's not like eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's or sneaking a smoke while the kids are at school. No, disinformation isn't a sin, it's a crime. On the other hand, if we're being completely honest here, and we strive to be completely honest, we have to admit there is a kernel of truth in what they're yelling about. There is disinformation out there, and it does hurt people. It makes people stupid, for one thing, but it also impairs their ability to make wise decisions. You can't know what to do next if you don't know what's really going on. 
A lot of people in this country are in that position right now. A lot of Americans are completely and utterly misinformed, and that has actual consequences. Public policy can change dramatically in the basis of things people think they know but don't actually know, and we have seen that a lot. So it's worth finding out where the public is getting all this false information, this disinformation, as we'll call it. So we checked. We spent all day trying to locate the famous QAnon, which in the end we learned is not even a website. If it's out there, we could not find it. Then we checked Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter feed because we have heard she traffics in disinformation, seen and told us, but nothing there. Next, we called our many friends in the tight-knit intel community. Could Vladimir Putin be putting this stuff out there? The Proud Boys, Alex Jones, who is lying to America in ways that are certain to make us hate each other and certain to destroy our core institutions? Well, none of the above, actually. It wasn't Marjorie Taylor Greene. It was cable news. It was politicians talking on TV. They're the ones spreading disinformation to Americans. Maybe they're from QAnon. You'd really need to be a, well, as CNN would put it, a disinformation network to pull that off. And of course, the irony is, because everything is irony, is that CNN itself has become a disinformation network, more powerful than QAnon and far more destructive. I received almost 1.5 million more votes than all of the Republican House candidates combined. So how the hell is it possible that we lost? It's not possible. I got more votes. I got more, which is me. When I say I, I'm talking about we. We, we got more votes than any incumbent, any incumbent president in the history of our country. Almost 75 million votes. And that doesn't include the votes and ballots they threw out, okay? I got over 11 million, very close to 12 million more votes than we got in 2016. And I was told by John McLaughlin that if you, the great pollster, that if you get to see, we had 63 in 2016, 63 million. Sir, if you get to 66 million, you have it made. We got to almost 75 million, then what the hell happened? What happened? What happened when they closed all of the counting booths? What happened at 3 o'clock in the morning? What happened at 3.02 in the morning? What happened? No president has ever lost an election after carrying Florida, Ohio, and Iowa. And I won them all, and I won them by a lot, by a lot. I won 94% of the primary vote, no incumbent president who received more than 75% of the primary vote has ever lost an election. I had a record number, and no president has ever, ever, and we're talking about a much lower number than we got, has ever lost an election. And these are numbers that are massive. These aren't little numbers. These are numbers that in each state is a transformative number. It changes the outcome of the election. And it's not close. Regardless of your political views, this should concern you as a constitutional matter. And the Supreme Court, again, didn't have the guts or the courage to do anything about it. And neither did other judges. And Democrats even admitted in Time Magazine, which is, I would say, on the liberal side, 
that they couldn't — they just couldn't hold it in. They had to brag about it, because what they did — they had to brag about it. They couldn't do it. You got to read the story. It's a disaster. It's a disaster for our country that we can allow something so corrupt to happen. Read that article. I really encourage you. You read that article. Yet all of the election integrity measures in the world will mean nothing if we don't have free speech. And that's where we're at now. If Republicans can be censored for speaking the truth and calling out corruption, we will not have democracy, and we will have only left-wing tyranny. And inciting the left as the source of tyranny, Trump got it just right. And there he is, Trump, loudly and clearly defending freedom of speech, which is the right thing to do, both morally and intellectually. Free speech is also a principle of the right, not the left, and not some middle of a road that doesn't exist. There just are no firm positions that you can tie to anything if you're going to stand in the middle of a road. So I have to wonder, does Trump sound like a conspiracy theorist to Jordan Peterson? Does Peterson have some kind of knowledge that lets him know that Trump is lying and therefore his, position, his opinions aren't valid? For advocates of critical thinking, both Peterson and Sad seem to avoid that kind of thinking when it comes to the polarity of left and right. It seems to me that any critical thinker would be automatically associated with the right. And guess what? That's exactly what happened to each of them. Yet look at how hard and to what lengths both Sad and Peterson went to avoid being labeled with a label that should be considered virtuous and honorable. And I get it, they don't understand that. They've been fooled. And this was truly painful for me to hear because even as they refused to get anywhere near that label of being right, everything they said contradicted their own stubborn insistence to remain in some kind of undefined centrist position. Peterson says, what was interesting about that to me was that you tend to think better of people when they come to your defense. And he said that with a lot of frustration and disappointment, because <laughs> he says, and so it's hard to keep your centrist bearings when the right comes to your defense. Well, that's why he's so frustrated. He wants to hang on to that center position, and yet, oh man, that's just not where it's at, right? Of course it's hard to keep your centrist bearings, because the centrist ground that you're standing on doesn't exist. Peterson says he tends to think better of those who, who defended him, because they defended him. Well, that's not exactly a principled reason to think better of them. I think maybe the real reason he tends to think better of those on the right who defended him is because subconsciously he's come to realize that they, like him, also respect the same values of free speech and individual freedom and justice and evidence and objectivity, which puts them in the same basket, doesn't it? Puts the whole bunch of them on the right. And these are things that you want to respect. As an academic, I haven't felt the pressure of right-wing conspiratorial theories in relationship to my work, says Peterson. Well, again, another clear acknowledgement that even right-wing conspiratorial theories are not a threat to his work, yet he resists. Meanwhile, Sad says virtually the same thing. Within the context of academia, the most idea pathogens are on the left, but then goes on 
to explain, quote, I truly don't believe in an all-encompassing label that defines my political positions, end quote. Well, there is such a position, Gad. It's called the right. You know, that place where freedom and free speech reside and all those values that you espouse? Yeah, it's over there. But, again, when you don't know what the true right is, you've lost your compass. And so he says, so really my own personal tribe is one defined by examining each individual issue and then forming a position based on universal founding principles. <laughs> so out of the blue, Gad brings up universal founding principles without giving us a hint of how these apply to his political position on an issue or what those principles are. But I can infer, it's clear from his broader generalizations, that what he's looking for is some kind of objectivity based on reason and evidence, which, by the way, are principles that apply only to the right. So I hope you understand my frustration with this whole affair, because I find myself in the position of having to take a few shots at people I usually support and, and, and fully promote, but more to the point, this is truly a defining issue that drives every other political issue we can imagine. And that's why we have to get our polarities and definitions just right. So to wrap up, when Peterson and Sad were referring to what they called left and right, they weren't talking about left and right. They were, in fact, referring to political liberals as the left and politically progressive conservatives as the right. But when it comes to the proper polarity of these positions, we soon discover that capital C conservatives and capital L liberals are all socialists of some varying degree, which places them all squarely on the left. So quit thinking that they're something different. They're the same thing. You know, in the end, the irony of the discussion regarding idea pathogens was that when it came to left and right, both Peterson and Sad were infected with a pathogen that in the words of our listener Trevor D. at our show's opening, caused, quote, the needle on Peterson and Sad's political compasses to rapidly spin around and around. In my opinion, he says, they should both start listening to Just Right, end quote. Which is exactly what we shall now invite all of you to do by joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Am I interrupting? Ah, oh, <laughs> boot, Carter! How very nice to see, see you! you. Nice. From now on, it will not be so nice. You have become very social, you three. Oh, it's just a discussion of prison problems, General Bocata. We never stop trying to build better mousetraps. <laughs> you take me for a fool, Clank. Do you not know that I have my sources of information? When I see my colonels getting together for a little chat, I know what they are talking about. A plot to replace me. Oh, Pretending. I only want to know one thing. Who will save his skin by informing on the other two? I believe that General Burkhalter knows that as a man of honor, I would never inform on my fellow officers were I involved in a conspiracy. However, since I'm completely innocent, it was all the idea of Fossey and Burmeister. You're all under arrest in quarters. 
I will see to it that you get a fair trial immediately, after which you will be shot. 